0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with DJ Stout about his career in design. DJ Stout is a partner at Pentagram who lives in Texas.
1: My, my whole philosophy is that Nothing has meaning unless it actually comes from a smaller place. Anything that's known globally came from somewhere. So I really love being called a regionalist.
0: The interview was recorded in front of a live audience at the South by Southwest Festival in Austin. It took place on March 12, 2017 at the Dropbox podcast studio. Here's Debbie Millman.
2: DJ, thank you for being here. Oh, My pleasure. Let's talk about your life. DJ, you're a sixth-generation Texan, born in Alpine, which is in a tiny little town in West Texas in an area called the Big Bend. After your father became an officer in the Marine Corps, you moved nearly every year of your childhood. But you came back to Texas to make your life here. Why?
1: The reason I was born in Alpine is my dad played for the Alpine Cowboys, which was a uh, legendary baseball team. is was owned by a, a bigger-than-life Texas millionaire at the time named Herbert Coconut. And Mr.
2: Herbert, as he was called. Mr.
1: Herbert. Um, and when I was growing up, actually, when I was a kid, my dad was always talking about Mr. Coconut. Me and my brothers always thought that his name was Mr. Coconuts. Um, but anyway, my dad, that's the reason I was born in Alpine, My dad played baseball there uh, for about three or four years, and then he joined the Marine Corps, and so we started moving every single year. And so I lived all over the country, but I finally, uh, when I had a chance, I came back to Texas, because that's where my roots are.
2: You ended up writing a book about the Alpine Cowboys. What made you decide to do that?
1: Well, actually what happened was, um, I've designed hundreds of books, um, but that was my first book that I wrote. And... Uh, there was an author who contacted me, David Wilkinson, and he said, I want to talk to your dad because I heard that he played for the Alpine Cowboys. He uh, started working on a a book. It was a book of fiction, and he wanted information about this character that he was developing in the fiction book, this Alpine Cowboy player. And so then he started talking to my dad. He started talking to some ex-players, and he said, I'm going to do a book, a history book about this amazing team. And He worked on it for about six or seven years, and then he just ran out of gas. And so my dad called me one day and said, DJ, why don't you write the book? And I was like, well, that's great, except for I've never written a book before, and I really don't know that much about baseball. (laughs) So I did, and uh, part of the reason I went ahead and did it was I found all these really wonderful photographs. And so it's a big coffee table book. So if you ever want to read about the Alpine Cowboys, it's still available uh, on Amazon.
2: In addition to being a baseball player and a marine, your dad was also a sports writer. And I understand that he encouraged you to write your own neighborhood newspapers in every town you lived in. And your first publication was called The Weekly Laugh, L-A-F. So did you write and design the whole thing? What made you decide to take this on as a project?
1: Well, because I was always the new kid on the block, we moved every single year, a couple of times, twice a year. So I got over being shy really quickly, um, but my dad loved journalism um, and he started encouraging me to do these little newspapers. And so I had these little rudimentary printing presses and I would make these little newspapers and I'd go hand them around to the people in the neighborhood. And, and it was a way to get to know people in the neighborhood. And they just thought it was crazy that I was doing this little newspaper. You know? And
2: you did the whole thing yourself? I mean, you wrote it, you designed I, it. I wrote
1: it and designed it. and then, But later when I would get into, if I'd go to a new school, I would ask them if they had a newspaper. And a lot of times they didn't have a paper. And I'd say, can I start one? Then I would put together a staff. And I figured out that having a magazine staff is a great way to make friends. <laughs> so I had, you know, I had like a girl who who did the fashion column. Uh, I had a sports guy. You know, I had a guy who did investigative journalism. To this day, having worked on tons of magazines, I love being part of an editorial staff. You know, it's, it's just, it's my thing. There's something
2: about that kind of collaboration. Yeah, and it, so it, forces, you know,
1: it forces them to be my friend.
2: And how did you yeah. print these things?
1: Uh, well, at the beginning, you know, my dad would buy me, like, whatever crappy printing press that was available that you could buy at the mall or something. Like
2: a mimeograph machine? Well,
1: at one point I had a mimeograph machine. You know, the... Um, those blue paper That, that, that makes the blue ink, you know, right. that, that uh, the schools would uh, print out tests on those and then you, as soon as you got them you would smell them, you know. And, <laughs> and uh, I had one of those and uh, that was my other newspaper. Was, it was called the Sea House Weekly. Seahouse... I put it on the mimeograph. Yeah. C- Sea House, because the name of the school where I went that year uh, was in what's called Seahouse.
2: Okay. So. Did you know at that point that you wanted to be a designer, or were you thinking about becoming a journalist, or what were you imagining for yourself at that point in your life?
1: Well, in 1968, my dad was in Vietnam, and when he came back, I was living in Odessa, Texas, and my family went to the mall, and I'd been doing cartoon papers and drawing and doing my little newspaper and everything, but I didn't really understand what it was. And so we went to the mall, and there was a show of graphic design, which I'm sure was really fabulous there in Odessa, Texas. Um, But I saw that, and I was like, Dad, that's what I want to do. What is this? And my dad said, this is commercial art, son. And I was like, that's what I want to do. Wow. And and to this day, I actually kind of like the term commercial art. Why is that? Which is sort of, you know, poo-pooed these days, but I like it because it includes the word art, and I, and I always feel like everything that graphic designers do truly is an art.
2: What made you decide to go to Texas Tech University?
1: Um, well, I, I actually started college in Virginia because my dad was stationed there, at James Madison University, but then I decided to come back to Texas. I wanted to be where my mother was. My parents had had been divorced, and my mother was living in Texas. And so I went to a school that was actually fairly close to where she was living, just to help her out. She was having kind of a hard time. And it turned out that it was a great place for me to go. And I, I worked on the newspaper, of course, there, so I had instant friends because, you know, I was part of a newspaper staff.
2: You had two jobs in school that had nothing to do with design and journalism. You worked as an electrician's assistant in a house factory early in the morning, and then you washed dishes at the dining hall during lunchtime. When did you have time to go to school?
1: And so I would get up 6 o'clock in the morning, go work in this house factory. Then I would go wash dishes so I could... um, I didn't have any money when I was in college. And so I worked in the dining hall washing dishes so that I could get a free lunch pass. And then I would have to go to class. and Must have I mean, been exhausting. I was exhausting. I, I, I still think about my college days just being extremely tired all the time.
2: When you graduated, I understand your plan was to work at a magazine in New York City. And yet you ended up in Dallas. How and why did you go there?
1: Well, uh, like I said, I didn't have any money. So I had a really crummy car. And when I graduated, you know, it was late spring, early summer. It was really hot in Texas. And my car didn't have any air conditioning. And so I got in the car. I said goodbye to my girlfriend at the time. I said, I'm going to New York. I'm going to go work at a magazine.
2: Did you, you know? have any idea which magazine you wanted to work No, at?
1: I just was going to go. and then I wanted to work and, at
2: Vanity Fair. That was my thing. I'm oh, going yeah. to New York City. I'm going to go work at Vanity Fair. Yeah, Didn't work out.
1: <laughs> I think I wanted to work for Esquire. Um, that makes sense because that was my magazine and still is and so I I started to go there but my uncle was working for a big printing company in Dallas um, my dad's brother and he said come see me first DJ on you know and so I I took a turn down to Dallas he said I can hook you up with a a list of designers that I know because I work at this it was Williamson Printing and one of the first designers that he had on his list was Woody Pirtle. And Woody
2: Pirtle is, was ended up being your partner. He ended up being him.
1: my partner, but he didn't hire me at the time. Really? <laughs> he
2: rejected you. He rejected me. I hope you've given him a lot of grief over that I over the years. Actually. Good, yeah. good.
1: Yeah. All I remember is I, I, I showed up to show him my book with Jack Unruh, a very famous illustrator who just passed away, actually, uh, last year. And Jack, I just remember Jack saying, Woody... There's this young designer just graduated from Texas Tech. He would really like you to look at his portfolio, and I can see Woody out, the, kind of in the back of the place. That was when Woody was in Dallas, and Woody just had fear in his eyes.
2: <laughs> Why? I, I don't want to
1: see this kid. Oh, well, I. <laughs> think, he was very nice. You
2: yeah, know, but, but he still rejected you.
1: Yeah, he rejected me because my um, my portfolio actually was not that great. So I have to say, so.
2: well, I find I it, would have
1: rejected me too.
2: Really? <laughs> so so it's so interesting because John Medier did a fantastic movie about you, a film about you and your life and your work. And now that I've seen it in retrospect, I'm really happy that Woody Pirtle actually had a a fairly significant part talking about what an amazing designer you are and what it means that you've been able to do this work in in your career. But your first job out of school was working as a designer for Robert A. Wilson Associates, a small communications firm. And what made you decide to take that direction? Was it just that you got this job, you needed a job, and that was the job you took? Well,
1: uh, like I said, I, I went to Dallas, and I was just going to go there and, and stay with my uncle for a couple weeks. And I didn't really think I was going to get a job,
2: but I, I had two offers like in a week. Despite the fact that you said your portfolio wasn't very good, well, was, two offers you know, in a week. Well, mine,
1: mine was, a lot of it was illustration, because I loved illustration, and so I was a little confused. Why could you not be an art director, designer, and be an illustrator at the same time? But what happened was, I got, all of a sudden, I got two offers. I didn't have any money. I would have taken any job, any job, that was graphic design oriented. And one was a big advertising agency that was really booming at the time because there was a lot of growth in Dallas, a lot of building and development. They were really booming. And then there was a small firm that nobody had ever heard of. And I had both offers at the same time. And then I was torn. So at the last minute I decided to go with Robert A. Wilson just because my gut instinct told me that that was the place to go. and It turned out that that was probably the best thing for me because the big advertising agency actually went belly up and I I really thrived at this smaller firm.
2: I know that one of uh, Robert Wilson's clients was Ross Perot. Did you do any work with him?
1: Back in those days we did a lot of annual reports. EDS, When Ross Perot started EDS was one of our main clients. And I just remember walking in to make a presentation to Ross Perot and I was sort of, I had Kind of long hair, and I was kind of dressed like a college kid, and I started to explain my idea and everything, and Ross Perot just cut me off. And I, I learned a lot from that. First of all, I learned it was a whole room full of, of businessmen all wearing suits, and I realized that you've lost the game if you walk in and you look like an art director. If you look like unkempt, and they are they've judged you the minute you walk in the door. And so I kind of learned a lot from working with those kind of, corporations. And so things. when he
2: cut you off, what did he say?
1: You know, he has a like kind of a whiny voice. He was like, "Son, you need to you need to um get to the point." <laughs> you need to get to the point because I was explaining to him all my all my big concept and everything for the end report. And he didn't want to hear all that. You know, he's like, "I'm busy." <laughs> <laughs> and then afterwards, actually Bob Wilson, you know, he sort of said, "You need to dress better. <laughs> all our clients were corporate, you can't look like a college kid." and you can't look like an art director. And so he, I didn't have any money, so he gave me some money and said, go to Brooks Brothers and buy a suit. So it was really nice.
2: That's awfully generous of him. So despite-
1: so I wore the one same suit for like five years. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Despite the fact that you designed quite a lot of annual reports back then, some advertising, you did a few brochures and books at Robert Wilson Associates. In 1987, you got the job to become the art director of Texas Monthly Magazine without ever having designed a magazine in your life. How on earth did you get that job?
1: I'm I'm not exactly sure, actually. Uh Fred Woodward, who is one of my mentors, um, Fred Woodward is the art director of GQ now, but he was at Rolling Stone for a long time. Uh, he's one of the best editorial art directors in the world. He was the art director at Texas Monthly before me. And I had met him in Dallas, actually. He, he was working for D Magazine, which is the city magazine there. Um, and so when he decided to go to Rolling Stone, he put me on a long list of art directors that editor should talk to so the editor was Greg Curtis and Greg Curtis came to Dallas and I I interviewed with him and I didn't have any magazine experience at all however uh, my oldest son was born about that time Patrick he's 30 and I I did this little birth uh, announcement which was a little book and I, I took Patrick in his little baby carrier all over Dallas and I photographed him in front of all these landmarks and the book said there's a new kid in town and it was just photographs of him all over town. I sent that book to Texas Monthly and they, they did a little thing about it in the magazine and when I met with Greg, that's all he could talk about was that little birth announcement and so I really think that's why I got the offer was because of my son Patrick being born. And the fact that I did something that I knew how to do, which was to do a little
2: book. You've heard it here first. (laughs) You took the position that Fred Woodward had. How did that feel? I mean, were you feeling daunted? Were you feeling like, how could you ever possibly fill the shoes of this legend that had come before you?
1: I was a bit naive, um, but but also I was just, I was like, oh my God, what did I just do? Um, My first day going to the Texas monthly office closing the door and all of a sudden it was like now I have to design a magazine and I was like what do I do now <laughs> like, I, I, I just was sort of like I don't know how to do this actually <laughs> but I had a lot of help my associate art director was Nancy McMillan uh, who still is a dear friend of mine and and uh, another one of my colleagues Kathy Marcus who were, they just jumped in and helped me out and Didn't make fun of me, and you know, they so it it, it turned out really great.
2: So, you know, that the uh, former editor in chief, the current CEO and editor in chief of the Texas Tribune, a man named Evan Smith, um, said that when he first met you, he thought you were a dope. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and that's on the record. No, I know.
1: Yeah, thanks, Evan. Um, uh, Actually, Evan and I. worked together for about eight or nine years at Texas Monthly. He was the deputy editor. He's he's a brilliant editorial editor. He's, 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 he's fantastic. Um, but I have to say, at the beginning, it was a little rocky. Like, he had come from New York. I actually, at that time, had a lot of power at the magazine for an art director. And he, I, I think he came in, and he'll agree to this, that... He was like, why is the art director making all these decisions? And I, I wrote a lot of headlines. and i
2: You're wearing a suit.
1: and Yeah. <laughs> and I, I had a lot of say editorially. And I think he was a little unsure about that. He, but then we had a great partnership. We, we worked together really, really well for an editor and, and an art director. And to this day, he's, he's really a great friend.
2: And by the way, he now thinks that you're one of the masters of integrating words and pictures. Just... To be clear.
1: Well, that's sort of my sweet spot. I think, yeah. um, you know, art direction. Lo- most people don't know what it is. My parents still don't know what I do. Um,
2: actually, I think y- your so- dad had said. I, I read that yeah. when you were working at Texas Monthly, your dad wasn't familiar with what an art director at a magazine actually does, and he asked you the following: If you don't take the pictures and you don't do the illustrations, what do you do? Yeah. And what did you tell him?
1: I, well, I told him that I, design, I designed the magazine, and he, he was like, I, he just totally was unclear about that. He said, don't you have a computer that can do that? <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah, I mean, that, you know, we use computers, but you don't have to just push a button.
2: It's funny how people always think designers just push yeah. buttons.
1: However, when I, when I did the book about the Alpine Cowboys, I did it with my dad. My dad lives over in Asia. Um, he's lived there for a long time. and. We did that book together, and it was really great because it brought father and son together. Um,
2: Once we did the book, then he told me, now I understand what you do. The first cover you designed for Texas Monthly was about a doctor that was killing people, and you found out that right off the bat, it was going to be the best-selling issue of the magazine in its history, your first issue. And I read that this resulted in a self-described big head syndrome, Um, but that was quickly made rather small by the second cover you designed. So what happened, and what did you learn from that experience?
1: Yeah, you know, I started at this newsstand magazine, which is tricky because newsstand magazines are all about sales at that time, 1987. Um, So there was a lot of chatter and a lot of hand-wringing because I'd never designed a magazine before, but also just like, you know, here's this new guy, this new art director, does he really understand about how to sell magazines? So this first story, uh, we, we did this kind of weird photograph of a scary doctor lady and... With a sort of Joker-esque... She had like a mask, like a, a surgeon's mask with a scary smile on it and everything. You know, my editor just said, okay, this is weird, but let's do it. And it became the best-selling issue. And so I, I just, I couldn't even walk through the halls, my head was so big. And then I thought, this is nothing. It, you know, selling magazines is easy. The second issue was about Van Cliburn, who was a famous pianist who was living in Fort Worth at the time. And they just let me do whatever I wanted to. And we did this kind of Andy Warhol-esque uh, looking cover. And I thought, well, he knows what he's doing. And so that issue was the worst selling in the history of the magazine. <laughs> so I kind of got that, all that stuff out of the way in the first two issues. And, um, what I realized, though, at that time was that, truthfully, it's all about content. Like, I could design the most beautiful-looking cover with the most beautiful type, the great colors, whatever, giant, you know, headlines, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's the combination of the visual and a great story. And that that story about this woman who was killing people was a great story. It was really an interesting story, and that's why it sold so well. Um, and so later at the magazine, if the editorial team came to me and said, we want this to be the cover. I would push back and I would say, I'm telling you, that is not gonna sell. It's just not gonna sell because the story's not good enough. A lot of times what happens is, if a magazine doesn't sell well on, on the newsstand, they blame the art director right off the bat. But really, it's truly about the story. And so I, I said, look, I'm not gonna take credit for doing a bad cover I can I can build a great cover but it's never going to sell cuz the story's not good.
2: So the word content is a bit squirrely these days in that it means more than just the story. We had words like art and editorial and now it's content and assets. And there's something about that and maybe it's because I'm sort of an old fuddy-duddy, um, that bothers me. I, I still love the words editorial and art, and I feel like somehow the words content and assets denigrate that the discipline and the pursuit of something higher. What do, you, do, you, do you agree? Do you
1: disagree? I mean, I'm an editorial animal. So, I mean, I, as you know, I was doing newspapers when I was, you know, eight years old. So, to me, it's always been just this melding of great, what I call content, a great story. It's all about storytelling. And whether you tell a story through a great photograph or you tell a story through a great text or you tell a story through illustration or a combination of all those things, it's got to be about telling a story.
2: You were the art director of Texas Monthly from 1987 to 1999, during which time the magazine was nominated for 10 national Magazine awards, which is the equivalent of an Oscar in the acting business, that is phenomenal. You won three. These things don't happen. That would be that's like Meryl Streep being nominated every year in a row for ten years. Even that hasn't happened. What do you attribute that type of acknowledgement for? What do you think was was happening at the magazine that hit that zeitgeist in that way? At
1: that period, um, it was just a Great combination of a great editor, it was Greg Curtis, and a great art and design team. And my editor, Greg, uh, really trusted me and my editorial instincts, and Evan too. I mean, I can't, I can't remember Greg ever killing anything that I, that I presented. Now, he would say, Well, there's, you know, some of the writers think that this cover is maybe slightly off or whatever, and then I would go and rework it. But he would never just kill anything straight out. His whole thing was, you're the art director. I don't know anything about design and art. I'm going to let you do your job. That's rare. Yeah, it's rare. And But he also respected me because I read all the stories, every bit of content. Um, you know, I read them several times. So I was prepared, And I, and I also appreciated the writing and I understood what we were trying to communicate. Sometimes uh, designers get a bad rap that all they care about is beautiful typefaces and beautiful colors and that they don't care about the actual writing. There's actually even a joke about you know art directors and designers not reading.
2: Oh, I know that. designers that yeah. design books and don't read the and books. don't read the books. And, and read I don't the see synopsis. how they do that. I don't you know? either.
1: So to me, to me it's all, and so he had a respect for that. The bottom line is at that point, it was uh, I was in my sweet spot, and Greg allowed me to do it. The editor allowed me to do it. So we were doing
2: things, a regional magazine, that caught the attention
1: of the entire country.
2: Now, you have a very specific design philosophy. Your philosophy is design the problem, don't decorate. So what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, I believe in, that what makes graphic design different from fine art is that Graphic design or commercial art is solving a problem. And when I say that to my clients nowadays, sometimes they go, well, what do you mean a problem? And what I mean is it's like a math problem. It's like, what are the goals and objectives of what we're trying to communicate? It's really a communication problem. What are we trying to communicate? And so everything that I design or that my staff designs, not just magazines, we still do a lot of magazines at Pentagram, but, but you know, if it's an identity system or whatever it is, we set up the goals and the objectives at the beginning, and then we, everything we do, every typeface we select, every color, every image, everything we do is trying to solve that problem.
2: I just interviewed the legendary type designer, Ed Benguet, and it's rare that I have two back-to-back interviews so close And Ed, actually, in my research, I found that he said this, type should be beautiful and screw readability. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Which sort of yeah. flies in the face of your specific design philosophy. And here I am doing research on both of these legendary designers at the same time and I'm like, wait, what should I believe? What's yeah. the truth? So what do you how do you feel about that sort of beautiful well, think, type and screw readability? Well, I kind of
1: believe in that too. I mean <laughs> no, in situations. Yeah. See it depends on what you're doing. I mean I believe me, my sort of my claim to fame, even to this day, is when designers say, oh, DJ Stout, they go, oh, he's that guy down in Texas that does all that crazy type, all that hand-drawn type. So even today with all the magazines we do, I do a lot of exploratory type solutions. A lot of it is hand-drawn. Like, I'm not afraid if, if it's the right communication, if it's the thing I'm trying to get across, to just do some scribbles and scan them in. and But but a lot of the typography I, that I've done for magazines over the years is actually hard to read. But my editors would allow me to do it. But it depends. I'm not totally against creating a like display type that's a bit hard to read. I think that's okay. I think, I think that readers can figure it out.
2: So despite you being at the top of your game in 1999, being nominated for 10 National Magazine Awards, winning three, you are invited to join Pentagram, one of the most prestigious design firms in the world, as a partner, and you leave Texas Monthly. Was that a hard decision? Was that just a no-brainer? Talk about how you how that yeah. happened.
1: Actually, what, what happened was uh, I had known Paula Scher. I've known Paula Scher for a long time. And Paula Sher is one of the Paula partner's Shares, most
2: famous partners at Pentagram.
1: Yeah, she's, she's a fantastic, iconic designer, a great friend of mine. I've been partners with her now for 17 years. But Paula happened to be at a Pentagram meeting here in Austin. Uh, Lowell Williams founded, Lowell Williams is a designer from Houston, founded Pentagram office here, the Pentagram office. And they were doing... A, a lecture over at the University of Texas and I saw Paula and I tried to lure her away to go get, go get some drinks and she said, oh no, I have to hang out with my partners. And then she went back home and her husband is Seymour Kost and he's a fantastic illustrator, one of the best in the world, also a friend of mine because I gave him a lot of assignments over the years. She said, you know, Lowell really is looking for, needs a partner because we're a partnership. And then Seymour said, what about DJ? He's right there. And so next thing I know, Lowell calls me and says, Paula thinks that, you know, you'd be a good, a good partner. But the word on the street is that you'll never leave Texas Monthly. Because I, I had had offers from Esquire and GQ and whatever, and I never left Texas Monthly because I just thought I had a better job. But at the time, Texas Monthly, which had been owned by Mike Levy, who was the founding publisher was just purchased by a company out of Indianapolis and my editor told me that he was Greg told me that he was thinking about leaving because they didn't like the new owner and I didn't like the new owner that much either and I'd been there for a while so I told Lowell hey I'm ready I'm ready to join Pentagram it was a great thing for me because I could become part of an international design firm and I could stay in Texas
2: and I understand you have a no-headphones policy in your office? Nobody's allowed to listen right. to anything on their own?
1: It's not because I, I'm against people listening to music or whatever, because we actually sort of blast the radio in our, in our office so that everybody can hear it. And we have, like, six or seven dogs that are barking all at the same time. Um, however, I believe... I guess it's because I come from an editorial background. We're set up like a newsroom. So I have uh, eight designers... And they're all standing, stand-up desks, all in a line. And they can hear everything that everybody, you know, they all deal with clients. So everybody can hear everybody else's phone call and their conversations. And because they're not listening in their, to headphones and listening in, to whatever in their own little world, they're forced to be a team. And you can see it. Like, like, if somebody is like, what's the command for whatever? And then they just yell it out and somebody says, oh, you know, command X or whatever, and, you know, so they'll, they work together, and also if they're talking to a client, it's not going well, they'll, like, put it on hold, and they'll help each other out, and, you know, um, that's the reason I do that.
2: I read an interview wherein you declared new school graphic design can benefit from old school techniques. But you also stated, what I think is overrated in today's design conversation is the emphasis on technology. So I'm wondering where you stand now. How involved is technology in your work?
1: Well, obviously technology has really, really helped graphic design. I mean, like, that's obvious. However, there was a period, I think, because of this new powerful tool, where designers were just enthralled with it and they would just get on a computer and they would just start flailing around with looking at typefaces, because now, you know, you have a zillion typefaces. When I was at the magazine before computers, you know, we had six typefaces. That was it, you know. So there's there's just almost too much available. I think though now what has happened is because that tool is now a given that things are calming down and now designers are going back to doing sketches first and thinking about ideas before they get on a computer or at least my designers do and a lot of my designers are coming out of college and they are trained to do that and I love to see that because it's It's all about the idea. It's not just about about finding a beautiful typeface and whatever. And so I think that that's an old world technique, you know, actually thinking about an idea
2: first and doing a sketch. But I think it's coming back. Well, you've said that clients hire designers because of the way they think. Right. How do you feel that designers can articulate what they think through design in more impactful ways?
1: Well, I I really feel like what separates the men from the boys in graphic design is the ability to sell an idea to a client. It doesn't have to be a hard sell. It just has to be able to convince a client that your idea is going to solve the particular problem that you're after. And I would say that my partners are some of the best in the world at selling, selling ideas. And, you know, there's a lot of great designers out there that do beautiful work, but when they go to try to convince a client or to explain to a client why they're doing that work, they fall flat. Because, you know, designers in general are, they're artists, and they're kind of quiet, and they wear their art on their sleeve a little bit, you know, and they get upset if a client doesn't understand it. I learned so much from Michael Beirut about how to sell to a client and he, he's brilliant at it and he actually has this great story about his dad sold Heidelberg presses you know uh, Michael Barrett is from Ohio and it's the story about how he always thought well yeah my dad is like uh, a record salesman for Heidelberg you know so what like whatever but when he realized what a being a great salesman was and then he embraced his dad's skill that he looked up to his dad and
2: say wow being a salesman is great if you know how to do it. I think that being able to sell your ideas is the second most important quality that a designer needs to have after being able to design. If you can't sell your ideas in any business, really, I don't know what type of success you could possibly expect to have, especially in a time like now when everything is, when there's so much being relied on how you communicate.
1: I, I have clients all over the country, all over the world, And when we do a presentation, I would say probably three-quarters of it is not design work. It's build-up. It's like, first of all, the beginning of the presentation is usually we understand who you are. We've done our research. This is who you are. This is what you're trying to communicate. It's the whole first part of the presentation is explaining to them, building their confidence that you have done your homework, that you know who they are, and that, that you understand them. And then, at the very end, we show some design. And, and then when they see it, then they give you a standing ovation, because it's like-
2: Building up the you, drama.
1: You built it up, and oh wow, they, you put it in their head that you're solving their particular problem.
2: So you have said that the key to good design is a good client or a good editor. and So I'd love to hear about one great client project and one that wasn't so great and how you managed it. you game for that? A little bit of reveal, a little peek under the hood?
1: Well, I mean, uh, um, with editors, like I told you, the reason we were able to do some such good work at Texas Monthly was because I was given the freedom to do that from an editor. Clients are the same way. Um, I have clients all the time that call me and they go, DJ, we're interested in hiring you because of the way you think. You think differently. And we've looked at your work and you think differently. And then I always tell them, that's great. You say that now, (laughs) but as I start solving the problem, you're going to say, this is really great, DJ, but this is so different. And and they always do that. And you know, it's because I'm like, well, you did, you wanted me just to solve the problem the way I did for this other client, but you have a different problem. A lot of clients don't understand that, but but you have to convince them that you, that you're thinking different, not just to think different, but to actually solve the problem. I have some clients that I just love that I've had for a long time. One is Loyola Marymount University, which is in L.A. I do their alumni magazine and um, and. They are an example of a client that just really allows me to do my thing. But they're great collaborators. Like, like it doesn't mean just I have a blank check. I mean, if they, they're like, well, that doesn't sound right. They work with me like a team. And then I've had other clients that I'm not going to name that <laughs> just, don't work, just don't work that way. And you can kind of know right off the bat that it's missing trust is what that is. Um, you know, like they don't quite understand what designers do that we're trying to solve a problem.
2: Talk about the magazine covers that you've designed for Dairy Magazine. They're some of the most beautiful and most unusual uh, design that I've yeah. seen in a while in terms of magazine cover models.
1: I've, I've done so many different kinds of magazines uh, at Pentagram.
2: And who knew there was a magazine called Dairy? I've done
1: magazines about lawyers, I've done magazines about Pigs, I've done magazines about um, beef, you know, whatever. I, and, and so, a lot of
2: ingredients. Yeah.
1: And so I, I happened to design a dairy magazine. that was called Dairy Management. And it launched them to the top of the dairy magazine world. <laughs> uh, so... The magazine that was at the bottom of the Dairy Magazine world was called Dairy Today. And they saw Dairy Management, and they called me and said, DJ, could you do something like really terrific that could get us more readers and more advertisers? And I was like, okay. But they didn't have a very big budget. Or no budget. And so my idea was they were putting photographs on the cover that were just the writer would go and just take a picture with his iPhone. And a lot of times they were like a picture of a cow's udders with like scabs on them and stuff like that. You know, it was just like too literal, you know? Cause I mean, they are dealing with, you know, disease and whatnot in, in the world of agriculture. But I said, you need to come up with something that's more of a brand that's memorable. And they didn't have a budget. So what we did was we, I convinced them to just do portraits of cows on beautiful colored backgrounds, just portraits. I hired a photographer, fantastic photographer named Randall Ford. We went to a place that uh, raises dairy cows for the dairy industry near Waco. I insisted that we use different colored backdrops for all these different cows. We photographed all these cows, put them on the cover, and then they had with one day of shooting, they had enough covers to last them for two years.
2: When those covers went out on the internet, it just went Viral how how would you describe the covers for anybody that hasn't seen and and you know Dairy magazine is is probably something that Not very many people in the room uh, have a subscription to Um, (laughs) So so describe the magazines because you approached the photography as if you were Shooting supermodels.
1: Yeah, like I said, I did a whole bunch of different kinds of magazines. I did a beef magazine What I found out from our research is people who raise cattle for, to be steaks, they don't name their cows and they don't get to know them. What I found out from talking to dairy people is they, a lot of times they're family businesses and they name their cows because they are getting milk from those cows and, and they love their cows. They're like part of the family, they really are. So that the idea was, let's photograph them like they're part of the family. Like let's do loving, beautiful portraits of cows. At first, you know, these guys are agriculture guys. They're like, what is... No, what, what's this guy talking about? And they were like, what are you trying to do, Jay? Do, do, I, I'm trying to do a portrait. And they're like, well, what do you want to get out of the cow? I said, I'm trying to get a little, you know, personality. And they were like, we love our dairy cows, but they don't have any personality, DJ. And oh, but they do. Yeah, they do. They do. So, the, the photographs turned out so nicely. We actually have big prints of them in our office. So, you know, when people come over, they're like wow, you guys really like cows here in Texas. Here in Texas.
2: <laughs> so let's, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about how you created the iconic neon pinup girl for Lucy's Fried Chicken.
1: So I don't know how many people here um, know about Lucy's Fried Chicken, but it's a, it's a wonderful uh, Austin institution. They've really captured sort of what Austin's about, I
2: think. Well, I think everybody here at South by Southwest yeah. has probably encountered yeah. Lucy.
1: It's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a great hang, and the owner contacted us for the first one. The first one is on South Congress, which is kind of a street that has an amazing, iconic, neon signs. Uh, most of them done by this old-school neon guy named Evan Voyles, who's a great friend of mine. Um, and he said, I want to create a sign that's like the other great iconic neon signs on South Congress for my restaurant. But he said, I learned how to cook fried chicken from my grandmother, and so I want this to be a tribute to my grandmother. His grandmother's name was Lucy. And so he named the restaurant after her. And he said, but I really want it to be kind of a like a sexy pinup girl. And the way he described it was like a 1940s pin up girl painting, like on the nose cone of a bomber, like in World War II. You know, one of those kind of things. And then I said, well, James, um, don't you think that's a little racy, you know, for your grandmother? And he said, well, <laughs> he was like, you Your daughter's name is too.
2: <laughs> Wait, you should, he should have seen his he grandmother? said, you should have seen
1: my grandmother. <laughs> and so he was from Abilene, and so he, you know, He's, he's a good Texas character. Now there's like four of them. Uh, we've done all these neon signs for uh, worked with Evan to do these signs, and they're really becoming part of the, the kind of Austin fabric.
2: Michael Beirut, your partner that you just mentioned, has referred to you as a regionalist. Would you say that that's true?
1: Right. And uh, Paula Sher, I just had a book that, that came out uh, a couple years ago, Paula Sher wrote the introduction, and she kind of referred to me as that as well. I think a lot of people, a lot of designers, now that everybody's trying to be so global, I think they they take the term regionalist as kind of a slight. I actually don't. I really embrace it. My, My whole philosophy is that nothing has meaning unless it actually comes from a smaller place. Anything that's known globally came from somewhere. So I really love being called a regionalist.
2: You recently said that you don't think that you are the best or most gifted designer out there. But you're willing to put in more hours than the average bear in order to find the right design solution. Do you really believe that?
1: I do, actually. Really? um, Because it takes me a lot longer, I think, to design or to write. It takes me forever to write. It's just that I am willing to like spend way more time, and an embarrassing amount of time, to do those things. So I'm not, you know, I'm like when I wrote my Alpine Cowboys book, and and my design book that came out in 2015, I, I literally was going in three times a week, you know, three or four o'clock in the morning, just so I would have a quiet moment before the day started. You know, I think it just takes me longer. But I'm willing to, to put the time in.
2: I have two last questions for you. I read that you feel that the American flag is too busy, the right. design of the American flag. Yeah. And you prefer the, the flag of Texas.
1: The Texas flag is such a better design. <laughs> um, because if you think about it, the American flag just has too many stripes and too many stars. Um, and if you, if, you, if you look at it from a design point of view, it's just really badly done because <laughs> it's, it's too literal. You know, you have like, you know, sure, you know, all the stripes, you know, have, stand for something and the stars and everything. The, 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 te- <laughs> the Texas flag is, is beautiful. It's taking that design and just simplifying it to the most beautiful form. One star, you know, the one lone star. One star state. And, and one big red stripe and one white. And that's all you need.
2: I think, I think maybe you should consider redesigning the American flag. Let's see where it goes. Um, so, DJ, I have one last question. One last question. This is a burning question for me. Because I have done a substantial amount of research on you in preparation for today's show. And this is a bit of information that I was unable to find. What does DJ stand for? You couldn't find that?
1: No, I could not. Uh, my father is named Doyle. Stout Sr., Doyle Irwin Stout Sr. And so um, when I was born, our next door neighbor said, it's too confusing having two Doyles. So my name is Doyle, uh, Doyle Jr. And so um, the next door neighbor said, I'm gonna call him DJ. And at that time, there was a popular cartoon on TV, I'm showing my age, called Beanie and Cecil. And there was a guy on there called DJ, you dirty guy, and DJ stood for Dishonest John. And, and so he thought that was cute. And then so to this day, you know, my name has always been DJ, but I am not a DJ because what happens all the time, like, like I'll go check into a hotel somewhere, and it's late at night, and you know, and there'll be like uh, somebody checking me in, I'm like, oh, DJ Stout, like, what kind, what kind of music do you do, DJ? And I'm, I'm like, what? <laughs> Like, I I don't need music in my room. No, no, what kind of music do you do? I I don't do music. I... I don't even allow headphones on my office.
2: <laughs> oh, DJ, thank you so much for making Texas more beautiful and the world more beautiful. And thank you for being on Design Matters today here at the Dropbox Studio.
1: Thanks, Debbie. This has been a real honor.
2: Thank talking. you. Thank you. Very thank much. you. Um, I'd like to thank you all for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference. We can make a difference or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you, everybody.
0: This episode of Design Matters was recorded by John McDonald at the South by Southwest Festival at the Dropbox Podcast Studio in Austin. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. The podcast is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.